Welcome to Meteor Roots Radio. This is your host, Abby Martin. Please consider donating to Grassroots Projects. We're offering free art and music for every $40 donation and more. So please consider donating to independent journalism if you want to see these broadcasts continue. Thanks so much for listening. Trevor was one of the first to write a comprehensive book about the CIA's rendition and torture program called Torture Taxi. He also wrote a book called If I Told You, You Would Have to Be Destroyed by Me, which is a book cataloging secret, covert black ops programs um, by the United States government. And it's also kind of a coffee table book featuring pictures of actual patches and insignias from these black ops programs, which are pretty amazing. Trevor is also into what's called experimental geography. And uh, Trevor was also in a noise group called Noisegate. And he also ran the infamous underground venue in Oakland called the Sandcrawler for many years. And it personally was a big inspiration for me. It was some of the first noise music I was exposed to as a youth. Uh, enjoy the interview with Trevor Paglin. So without further ado, uh, thanks so much, Trevor, for taking the time to talk to us today. We just wanted to start by asking, how did you get into the work that you do um, in terms of your art and just your pol political views? Well, I mean, it's a little bit of a, a difficult question to answer in the sense that um, on, on one hand, I feel like I've always done this kind of work. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, uh, you know, one project always builds on another. Um, in the 1990s, I was doing a lot of work around prisons and trying to understand how prisons worked. Um, particularly prisons that had built, been built since the late 1970s, early 1980s, and there was a, a real shift that happened in prisons around the country in terms of not only how they were organized, but the kinds of places where they were being built. There's a real shift from having prisons built in cities, being highly visible parts of the architecture, to becoming largely invisible in rural places, very remote. And that also corresponds in a, or coincides with the shift around the philosophy, really, of what prisons were. In other words, are they places for rehabilitation? Are they places for punishment and isolation? And, you know, again, around the 1970s, 80s, we get into this cultural tough-on-crime mentality and what prisons are really changes during that time. And so that's something I was uh, spending a lot of time exploring in the 1990s. And as the war on terror got going with this sort of thing, I saw that, for me anyway, that seemed like a lot of similarities between what had happened with prisons to what was happening with the, this new kind of war or these new forms of state power. And uh, I guess in a very general sense, that's one of the things that got me interested in this. So were you doing um, the, the same, or I shouldn't say the same type of art, but were you doing similar art that you're doing now back then? Or did it come out of your interest in, in the, in, politics or, or like starting with the prison system? Yeah, I, I was doing, in terms of methodologically, uh, it was very similar kind of art. I'm, I've always done art that is, um, has a real investigative side to it, a very uh, research-driven, um, and, and that has been, you know, pretty uh, consistent throughout my life that that's been the way I've been interested in approaching projects. So, so I, I didn't see this on, on any of my online research about you, but did you, did you do any sort of artistic um, projects surrounding this research in, in the U S prison system? Yes, I did. Um, it's, it, it's not something that's easy to find. Uh -huh. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's the best work that I ever did. <laughs> um, and 
but uh, it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. I'll def- I'll check it out. Um, yeah, after you know hearing about you and and reading about a lot of what you've done, uh, it made me realize that it seems like the field you're working in, if you can even call it a field, because it seems like there's very few people doing what you're doing in, in terms of. It seems like most political art out there is kind of a reaction to, you know, an idea or a situation in an existing artistic medium like painting or film. Um, and it seems like your art has kind of sprung up from the other, the opposite way. Like you, through your research and through some of your, your political ideologies, you have, you know, kind of almost accidentally come across some of these these things, it's, or it almost seems that way. Maybe you can elaborate on that. That's, that's very much true. Um, I guess the way that I approach something is I get interested in, in something that can be quite vague at the get-go. And I, and I just look at it and look at it and research it and think about it to the point where it tells me what it wants to be. <laughs> and that sounds uh, that sounds a little bit uh, perhaps flaky, um, but uh, but that's really the way that I think about it, and, and it's, it's hard to elaborate beyond that. But basically, looking for moments where where you find a metaphor, where you find an allegory, where you find a part that may stand in for a whole, and I. I, I in general, I think that's the way that I think about it. It's basically looking at the world and trusting that whatever you're looking at will at some point tell you what it wants to be. <laughs> and and I, I, I realize that there are even, uh, you know, perhaps flaky or even quasi-mystical undertones to that. And I don't mean it that way, um, <laughs> but it's something that's a little bit difficult to articulate. And how do you find the sites that you want to photograph, Trevor? Before there were Google Earth and, and the widespread availability of satellite imagery, what you did, if you wanted to see overhead views of things, you'd go to the USGS archive. Mm-hmm. They have a US, US, uh, geological society maintains a big archive of aerial imagery throughout history. And what you do is quite simple. You just go and you look for the things that were missing from that archive. (laughs) (laughs) That's a that's a very very interesting. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it literally started out as looking at blank spots on maps. Wow! Wow! That's very interesting that you that you mentioned that 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 you. It seemed like you used a similar technique to kind of come up with what you call the. A conserv a very conservative estimate of the Pentagon's black budget um, by looking at the the adding up your own totals and then comparing it to the published totals. Um, so I think that's exactly. fascinating that you work that way. That, that, yeah, that's um, that has become a, a kind of a trope in a lot of the research that I do. It's trying to um, trying to see something that's not there and not trying to see it for what it is, but they're trying to see around it, um, looking for absences. And sometimes an absence can give you a negative outline of something that's present. And again, that sounds a little bit philosophical, but you, but examples of that are, again, looking for the blank spots in satellite photos, looking for the blank spots in a budget, adding up what could be in there. And that gets you a guesstimate of what it might be, but but, it, but that question of absence is uh, ever present in, in my work and in the methodologies I use. What's the longest time that you've been out in the field for one project? Maybe a month. Wow. I'm not sure. Sure. Yeah. I, this, I mean, this kind, of, this kind of work requires enormous amounts of patience. Right. Definitely some photographs that I've taken. Uh, took me five years to figure out how to do it. That's not uncommon for me to take me four or five years to figure something out or figure out how I want to show something or can represent you, something. Can you explain to our listeners really quickly what exactly, how you take these um, images, what exactly you do, what equipment you have to get these composites? 
Well, there's different kinds of images you're, um, that um, you, in terms of the photographic work, right. there's two kinds of images I guess you're talking about. One are very, very long distance uh, photographs of different military and intelligence installations that would be taken anywhere from a couple of miles to 40, 50, 60 miles away. That's, that's one technique that I use. Another thing that I have done a lot of work around is photographing uh, spy satellites and different things in the sky that aren't supposed to be there. Uh, both of those techniques are similar in the sense that they use astronomy equipment, in other words, to take pictures of a military base or something that's quite far away, um, use astronomy tools in order to do that. Um, to take photographs of spy satellites, I mean, you really not only are using tools, uh, quite advanced ones, but you're also, you know, doing rocket science <laughs> pretty literally. I mean, you are doing uh, celestial mechanics to try to figure this stuff out. So there's a lot of, again, uh, research work behind it. And I've heard so you... One of, one, one of the projects is, you know, to photograph spy satellites, basically what you have to do is you have to figure out where they are. You know, to figure out where they are, you need to um, crunch data provided by amateur astronomers and, and uh, model the orbits of different spy satellites based on those observations. And then you take the model and you project it into the future and use that to determine where you're going to be, what the angle of the sun is going to be, and to try to predict what we call passes, the visible pass of a, of a satellite. And, uh, and there, there's, there's quite a lot of technique that goes into it. Um, I've heard you voice some frustration. Um, I think it was in a, a book TV talk you did on C-SPAN, and uh, you were talking about how, you know, when you've taken some of these photographs, um, they're always under, you know, some of the technically worst circumstances in a lot of ways to take pictures in. Like the lighting is really hard to get right and things like that. Do you ever um, have any fantasies about what kind of pictures you could take if you were able to get up really close to these secret places? Or would that almost kind of ruin the the um, surrealness of it? <laughs> Yeah, um, that's yeah. That's not for me. That's not the point. Um, I'm I'm actually not really interested in taking clear images. I'm not really interested in images that speak themselves. In other words, I'm much more images interested in images that are partial, that are blurry, that are fragmented, that are uh, impressionistic. Um, to me, those kinds of uh, impartial images or those um, fragmentary or impressionistic images are somehow more true than <laughs> than what we might call the aesthetics of, 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 of the aesthetics of objectivity and that's the phrase my friend Rebecca Solomon came up with um, but what, what she means by that is if you, if you take a straightforward photograph of something then we all assume that the photograph is of that thing if you take a photograph of something and it's very clear that you don't know what necessarily the photograph is, perhaps that's actually a better representation of the thing you're taking a photograph of. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> um, that kind of reminds me of a of a term that you brought up, um, and I don't know if... I, I you, you were the first one I've heard use this term um, to describe things this way, and, it, and I found it very interesting. Um, were you, you... You said... You said that, uh, some of your experiences have led to vision collapse, where, um, and you use the example of what what do you imagine um, you know a rendition kidnapper looks like? And you posted some pictures, um, some slides of just very normal looking um, people. And <laughs> I I guess I just Old want ladies. you to yeah <laughs> I guess I just want you to speak to that a little bit and and just how truly bizarre and um, just the the strangeness of that that it does almost come full circle and and the secret world you know does seem to when it collides with the real world yeah mm -hmm. yeah so I mean so methodologically this is 
again, a part of my overall practice is looking at the places where the things that we can't see intersect with the things that we can see. Mm -hmm. Again, that sounds quite philosophical, but it's something that it plays out on a case-by-case basis. Um, in general, when when I'm talking about the collapse of vision, I guess, which is, is, is a trope that comes up in my work a lot. And, and to, as an aside, this is a this is really a, a long and old theme in art, and is usually associated with what people call the sublime. And the sublime is not the thing that's beautiful. The sublime is the thing that shows you what the limits of your own perception are. The sublime is the thing that you can't understand, but that you understand that you can't understand it. And uh, so it's a very interesting idea to me. And Again, whether I'm taking these long-distance photographs of military installations and they're very blurry and, and messy and, and impressionistic, or whether that's taking pictures of spy satellites in the sky, which don't really look like much. They just look like a little streak or they look like something is a little bit wrong with what might otherwise look like a traditional astrophotograph. Or whether that is pictures of, you know, everyday people that look utterly normal, and yet you know that there's something very uh, abnormal, to say the least, about about uh, what their job is or what it is that they do. All of those are examples of coming to trying to see the fact that we can't. Or trying to see the fact that, there are, that our eyes can deceive us, or try to see the fact that we don't exactly know what it is that we're looking at. And, and to me, I guess that, that's, a, that's a very different approach than a traditional documentarian kind of approach. Yeah, it definitely is. And um, I mean, it, it's it seems to perfectly encapsulate what is so surreal and strange um, about. U.S. government secrecy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when we're looking at CIA black ops and the rendition program in itself. It, it's such a secretive program, and we know that, um, I mean, it's exporting torture, and if Americans knew what was going on, and if they actually saw, you know, images like you, uh, like you've shown, these are the people that are flying the torture flights. I mean, it's just such a element of cognitive dissonance where you can't even grasp that this is what you're seeing because it's such a strange evil i don't know it's just it's just so bizarre to grasp but that's you know here's the people that are flying the torture flights here they are how did you get those images trevor <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question um i i can't be completely clear about how, um, <laughs> how do we find out who's flying the torture flights <laughs> um it, it, it's basically correlating a lot of different kinds of uh, publicly infor available information against each other um, um, and working with people who, um, other researchers with people like that. Um, so it's a combination of using some some relatively non traditional research methods with just talking to lots and lots and lots of people. And the book that you co authored, Torture Taxi, that was the first comprehensive report that really detailed the the rendition program. Yeah, I, I think that was the first book that really talked about the rendition program uh in a kind of systemic way. Um but subsequently to that there's been a number of very good books. Uh Jay I just, it was a fantastic book that was, you know, again, far more comprehensive than what we were able to do. And she, uh, but, but her book came out three years later than, than ours did. Um, so, so yeah, again, there, there was a, about 12 to 15 people around the world who were really working on, on, on this problem, trying to understand this problem. And, and a lot of us were talking to each other. And sharing information, and, and that's where a lot of the material comes from that, that appears in the artwork sometimes. 
And a uh, lot of it's just original research, of course. Um, really quick, Trevor, uh, the name of the author you, you gave uh, cut out, um, what was that name again? I gave a, a cutout. Oh no! You no! You. I thought you said a name of a female author. Maybe I was mishearing. Oh, oh, Rebecca Solnit. Rebecca Solnit. Okay. Um, yeah, I guess the only, well, the first time I really read extensively about, you know, these rendition programs and um, things like that was from Jeremy Scahill's uh, research, and I think I, I forgot the the name of the book uh, that he wrote. But have you? He wrote a book on Blackwater. Yes, he wrote a book on Blackwater. And then he's, I don't know if you've been following his his new research, but I, I guess he went to Somalia um, in the past six months and uncovered some uh, some contracted out Somalian uh, ran prison there that's actually a CIA prison. Have you heard about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, that makes sense. Um, in, uh, what happened with the rendition program is it kind of went in two directions, and this is toward the end of the Bush years. So this is all stuff that happened after torture taxi came out and January's dark time. They really started redoing the whole thing. And the, the program evolved in two directions. In one direction, it evolved into really relying on foreign intelligence services to mm -hmm. do the front of this work. And really, outsourcing is not quite the right word because it's not necessarily the private entities. But for example, um, there was a big rendition that happened where people were leaving Somalia and moving into Kenya and being picked up by Kenyan uh, security services or police. And they were rendering them to Ethiopia for a while. And there was a secret prison in Ethiopia. And so the CIA themselves were kind of behind the scenes coordinating the logistics of some of the stuff that weren't you know, flying them in their airplanes in the same way that they had been before. And this is, you know, the, what, what Scahill was talking about with this prison in Somalia is a is kind of maybe a second or third association of that. And, and this is something they were doing before as well in, in, in the, uh, at this point we called it the classical rendition program. They were working with Egyptians, Jordanians, and Moroccans, um, working with other intelligence services. And I, and I think basically the program has shifted completely over to the point where the foreign intelligence services are doing the bulk, bulk of the boots on the ground kind of work. The other direction that the rendition program has gone and morphed into is really the drone program. And when you're looking at the uh, the drone assassinations of the Stam in the tribal areas of Pakistan, Somalia, um, Yemen, what have you, uh, that also comes out of the rendition program in the sense that the rendition program was about capturing people, taking them to secret prisons, interrogating them, trying to get information about them. Well, they decided they didn't really need to do that, but they just wanted to just kill these guys. And so they, uh, this is when the JSOC teams started getting going um, in a lot more substantial way. These are these uh, special forces guys, the, the same guys who killed uh, bin Laden. Uh, they do those kind of admissions all the time. kill people different countries. And the other part of that is the drone program, flying predator drones, repo drones, and, and again, just shooting a missile in somebody's house. Well, yeah, that, that's, it's so fascinating that you just brought up the, the special ops, because I just read an article that said that um, there's special ops going on in 120 countries, which when you think yeah. about that, I mean, that's an element of the budget that we don't really hear about, <laughs> not on too many Americans' radars in terms of thinking of our imperialistic costs, thinking that there's 120 operations going on in countries that are interfering with particular countries' democratic democratic processes and evolutions and progress. And that's really disturbing. Yeah, I mean, that, that, I mean particularly, uh, I think that this, um, the rise of the, the Joint Special Operations Command and Saudi's commando guys um, is really a story that, has been told in fragments, but nobody's really quite put together in one place. And I, I really wish that somebody would do 
do it um, because I think it's it's quite a dramatic and important development in terms of how the U.S. Uh, conducts operations around the world. Um, yeah, as you say, they, they these operations are active in many, 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 many different countries around the world with varying degrees of local knowledge and, and collaboration with them. And the structure of it is represents quite a shift as well in, in several senses. On one hand, it's traditionally the CIA who's done what are called covert operations, and covert operations are pretty much by definition illegal. I mean, that, that actually is the definition of a covert operation. And since the late 1970s, after the church in France, after Watergate and that sort of thing, the law says that the president has to sign off on each of these uh, covert operations that the CIA conducts, and that the operations are supposed to be reported to the relevant intelligence uh, committees in Congress. Now, those laws only apply to the CIA, but to the military, and you get in this, the military, on, legally speaking, doesn't do covert operations. What they do are called clandestine operations. Mm-hmm. It's a legal distinction that has very, very important consequences because it means that there doesn't have to be the same sorts of presidential findings surrounding them, and there doesn't have to be the same kinds of um, uh, Congress doesn't have to be informed in the same ways. So I, I think that what we're seeing with the rise of JSOC is really uh, activity that the CIA have traditionally been moving into the purview of the military. Keep in mind, the military has much faster than the CIA does, has much more that they can do in terms of logistics and operations, and it's just uh, uh, the whole different the other part of this has to do with what uh, new kinds of power that have been uh, given to the Special Operations Command. Um, traditionally, JSOC is what's called a supporting branch of the military. And what that means is that if you're a general in Iraq or Afghanistan or something like that, you could call on JSOC to come and do missions supporting your larger your larger strategy. That changed in about in the mid-2000s. JSOC went from being a supporting command to what's called a supported command. In other words, they got the ability to begin writing their own missions and calling on the rest of the military to support what they were doing rather than the other way around. These are some of the parts of um, this, what I think is a pretty significant shift in the way that covert operations work around the world. Um, you, you said that some of these operations that they do are, are illegal um, by definition. And I've heard a, an interesting term um, that I'm sure you've heard as well. It kind of reminds me of the term enhanced interrogation techniques. And, and that term is extra legal. Um, and I just, I just find terms like that so hilarious. Uh, I mean, maybe because of the irony of them or it's like the kinetic military action in Libya. (laughs) (laughs) It's just these weird terms that, yeah, mask. Do do you feel, um, that uh, Obama has said that, you know, he doesn't do the, those enhanced interrogation techniques anymore. Um, but yet there's so much evidence out there that rendition is, is continuing under him. Um, would you say it's fair to describe rendition or um, or that the Obama administration is basically still allowing torture, but now it's just, you know, exported torture? Um, that, that's a good question, and it's something that I would be uh, a little bit careful about. I don't think that the rendition program in the way that was going on 10 years ago is still going on in the sense that but I don't think that CIA is kidnapping people and bringing them to a network of secret prisons that they run and waterboarding them and torturing them and like that. Um, now, are uh, people still disappearing and being tortured? Yes. 
I guess part of the my paranoid mind um, when I when I hear of things like you know the assassination, you know the extra legal assassination of people like Al Alaki or Alaki is that how you pronounce his name? Um, that uh, that it's almost I, I feel that that some of it might almost be to get us used to the idea that this is now okay. Um, things like torture or extra legal assassination. How do you feel about that? Do you think there's any sort of PR uh, instrument in this where when these news stories come out about, you know, why America should be allowed to assassinate people that it serves some purpose? Um, yeah, and even just the term extraordinary rendition, it sounds like you're giving someone a premium service. <laughs> do, do you think that serves any sort of PR purpose um, to help America understand why these things need to be done? I don't think that it... Um is a conscious effort in films. I don't think that there's people sitting around in the back room saying, hey, let's uh, you know, change, you know, have a good PR uh, program or something, we should do this. I do think that, that, has, the, that it has the effect of, of the same thing. For example, if you start torturing people, disciplining people, you normalize it in a certain way. It becomes a part of uh, what we take for granted that the state is going to do. I, and here, here's what I mean. And, and if you, if it were 1997 and you polled, you know, everybody in the U.S. and you said, should the U.S. start torturing people? <laughs> I guarantee you, you know, 95, 96% of the population would say, absolutely not. Now, once you've done that, though, you say, come out, okay, we've been waterboarding people, we've been disappearing we've been assassinating people. Is that okay? Now you have numbers like, Oh, you know, well, you know, only 45% of the population say that's not okay because that new normal has been created. And to that is just really something that's one of the real dangerous things about these sorts of programs is about the creation of these new normals. Uh, the, Yeah, I mean, you changing how we expect the legitimate functions of the state to be. Yeah, I mean, using the word a new normal is a is a great way to put it. I mean, it seems like the Obama administration is the ultimate version of that. I mean, going from such a um, an extreme presidency or openly extreme presidency like George W. Bush, and then you know immediately having Obama, who seems to almost have put a new normal on all of these things that. Are still going, you know, like some of them aren't still going, like you you pointed out, but but just because it's a little bit better, it's almost like just because he's not doing as extreme things, it's almost just like it's okay, and there was no accountability for the unlawfulness of the Bush administration, so it is like a a new precedent that's been set where it's okay, we're not as bad as the other guys, we're still we still may be practicing these things, but not as egregiously, I guess. Trevor, I wanted you to talk about your book. Um, I could tell you, but then you'd have to be destroyed by me. Amazing name. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about what that book is? The book, um, I could tell you, but then you'd have to be destroyed by me. <laughs> it's a book of patches, military patches that people wear on uniform. And they're all patches worn by people who work on secret projects. And they're the patches for the secret projects. Um, you know, if you're a fighter pilot or a mechanic or something in the Air Force, you have patches that say who you are, what you do, what rank you are, what programs you work on, and so on and so forth. These are patches that, that are basically the same thing, but they're patches for projects that don't exist, right? for black <laughs> projects. Um, well, what's interesting about them is that you 
end up with this fairly sophisticated visual language um, and symbolic language um, whereby people are representing these uh, programs that must not be represented. And uh, this is interesting. This is, a, this is a very old question in art, if you know, in all kinds of representation itself. Um, so you have, you know, a, a sword in this path might represent a particular airplane. Lightning bolt might represent a, a certain kind of warfare. But you have this very rich symbolic language that is an attempt to speak about Trevor, um, can I ask you to possibly talk a little closer to the phone? I don't know if it might improve the audio quality slightly. Okay, thanks. It's so interesting going through your book of, of patches because on one hand we have the government telling us, you know, the, these programs don't exist. And on the other hand, you're going through and seeing these recurring themes of extraterrestrial figures and occult symbology. And it's just fascinating. It's like, well, what is it? Are you guys just fucking with us or what? I mean, <laughs> when you have a patch that says, you know, one thing and it shows like an alien. Tastes like chicken. Yeah, it says tastes like chicken. You have like an alien eating a fighter jet. <laughs> it's like, what exactly is going on? I mean, have you have you gotten a chance to talk to any military officials and just kind of confront them and been like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what does this mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. definitely. <laughs> I've talked to a lot of the guys who have designed these. Yeah. Paths, and, um, you know, they, they can't say what they are. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, part of the, the point. Um, but you can learn a lot about uh, the program sometimes from looking at the patch. Um, the, the program that you're talking about, I think, is for some kind of classified, probably radar cross-section testing of stealth airplanes. And that sometimes is represented by a lowercase sigma symbol, which in the kind of, which in the, and there's one of those symbols in the, in the patch you're talking about. But the lowercase sigma symbol represents an unknown or invisible radar cross-section. So this is the goal of stealth airplanes is the lowercase sigma symbol. And so that is a symbol then that gets appropriated as a general stand-in for stealth um, on the engineering side and for invisibility in, in a more cultural sense. Um, there are aliens all over the place in these patches, and uh, that is really the figure of the alien as something that has actually been appropriated by a lot of people who work on black projects. Um, it really is an inside joke, you know, where the <laughs> The guys that work on the aliens, or the, the, the crashed alien bodies, they're not serious about that. But it's a symbol that they've taken on to represent the otherworldly and extremely uh, secret things that they do. Yeah, it almost seems like uh, an open, open uh, taunting of a lot of the people who you know believe in a lot of wild alien theories. Like, uh, yeah, uh, definitely ripping on those kind of conspiracy theories. Oh, hold on one second, Trevor. We got a phone ringing. We just need to silence it really quick. Um, I just I wanted to ask you, change, you know, change directions a little bit and and delve a little bit more into your own, um, your own political side. Um, you know, separate a little bit from the artistic side. Um, I watched a, a thing of you on Democracy Now. I think it was for an interview when Torture Taxi came out, and. Uh, you you're openly critical of John Yu and the people who helped you know design this torture policy under George W. Bush, and I was just wondering at your time at UC Berkeley um, doing work there, did you ever encounter John Yu, or did you ever did you ever feel tempted to possibly encounter him? <laughs> um, I mean, I'd see him on the street. Uh, I never really talked to him. Um, I guess John Yu, to his credit, and and I think he's a bad person, and I think he's a, he hates America, but um, he, to his credit, he's been one of the few people involved in those programs that have been willing to get out there in public and, and defend them, or attempt to defend them, I, I think, very badly. <laughs> um, 
but he's since stopped doing that. But uh, but he, out of that crowd of people that were working on this stuff, he was really one of the people who was most willing to go there, out there in public and, and, and talk about uh, his rationale behind supporting these programs. So I, I mean, I would, I've seen him debate Mark Danner and, and definitely out and about for a while. So he's around. <laughs> I guess it, it kind of surprises me that he, did, you know, nothing's happened to him and, and you know, any no civil disobedience or any sort of like pieing in the face or anything and out, you know, walking around there's in Berkeley. A huge amount of civil, there's been a huge amount of civil disobedience. Yeah, doesn't he have to switch his, um, his classroom? I, yeah, I haven't been paying attention. Let us know. Yeah, please um, enlighten us on what's what's been going on in, in regards to that. I mean, for years, I think it was every Wednesday afternoon, there's been protests at the law school about him. Okay, so, there, so there is there there is some, some sort of uh, resistance Against. Oh yeah. Okay, well, that's good to know. You know, Trevor, we're big conspiracy buffs. We're not really like advocates of of the theories, but we love researching them and and we're really fascinated by them. Um, we can only imagine the people that have glommed on to your research <laughs> and have tried to uh, talk to you about some wild, uh, crazy stuff. But going along with just UFOs and just unidentified objects that you might see when you're doing your work. Have you come across anything that you can't explain um, through the research that you've been doing just out in the desert for a month? Have you seen anything just extremely bizarre? Not in the gene from that light and that kind of UFO story thing at all, but I mean, when you're looking at something like the rendition program or I mean, sure, when you're looking at spice, I like tons of stuff you can't explain yeah. what it is. But it's not like it's not like you're seeing something in the air that's moving around and doing crazy things that delight the five laws of physics. It's a you know, it's a, a satellite goes up in a particular orbit and it changes the orbit and it does this and it does that and you, you don't know why it's doing that. Um so well, I that is something that I see a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a very different way of seeing. I mean, it's a very different story than the classical. Oh, you're on a dusty road and the UFO came up to us. I've never seen anything like that. Um, so what you're saying is you've never been abducted by aliens. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I, I, I was. I think it was the patch in your book um, of a of a giant winged dragon, where the wings of the dragon have American flag motif on them, and he and it's surrounding the planet, like it's grasping it, yeah. and it's claw talons, I should say. Um, yeah. And I and I think you said that that project involved some sort of experimental spacecraft. Is that correct? Yeah, I initially thought that that had to do with the infrared imaging system on what what are called keyhole spy satellites, but I don't think that's true anymore. What I think that is is a eavesdropping satellite. In other words, the uh, eavesdropping satellite works is it's basically it looks like almost like an umbrella. It's about the size of a football field. So it's a huge, huge antenna that gets put into orbit and just sucks up radio signals from the ground. And what I think uh, there's a patch you're talking about, which is a big dragon, which is with, with uh, its wings outstretched around the world, and it's inside its wings are an American flag, and it's kind of encircling the world with its wings. And what I think the wings represent is this massive antenna array that's listening to everything that's being uh, emanate that's everything's emanating from from the earth below. That's quite creepy. It must be the patch for Echelon. <laughs> that new that huge uh, spy program going on with all the, the, the five main countries is pretty disturbing. So I guess I I I didn't realize that this this supposed um, antenna was this large. How do you even launch something? I mean, is it almost like the International Space Station that you would construct it in space? I mean, that seems... No, they, they don't construct it in space. I mean, they basically get folded up into into a smaller payload and goes and go up on very big rockets. And they go up into what's called a geostationary orbit or geosynchronous orbit. And they get released and then they unfold into these uh, giant spacecraft. And are these launches mostly 
I mean, I, I would assume they're probably all unpublicized, or or do they just go somehow, um, you know, hitch a ride on some of these more public launches? How does that work? Um, the way that works is they actually do uh, they do an Naval Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is in California, which is where a lot of the spy satellites go up, and the so you can go and you you can look at launch schedules and you can say. You know, on this day, this rocket's going to go up that rocket. And they do publicize this because they don't want anybody to think that they're starting World War III or IV. <laughs> um, and, you know, so they don't want to send up, you know, a Titan IV that goes over the Pacific Ocean and they're like, oh, you know, are you starting a nuclear war? Um, so they do say when they're going to launch, and what they'll do is they'll say, there's a launch, there's a launch number. And it's classified payload, and they won't say anything beyond that. But based on the kind of rocket that they're using, the time of day that the launch window is at, you can often determine, or you can make a very good educated guess as to what that payload might be based on the mechanics of the launch itself. Two different orbits do different jobs, the low Earth. A polar orbit is probably going to be an imaging satellite. The geostationary orbit is probably going to be either a communication satellite or an eavesdropping satellite. When something goes into that orbit, you can actually look at it, and a, an eavesdropping satellite is brighter than a communication satellite. So you can, you know, quite literally use the use rocket science or selective mechanics to, to understand a great deal about what some of these stuff might be. Trevor, you said you said that secrecy in a democracy is a volatile concept. What do you think about, you know, in your work, basically your work focuses on, on secrecy in itself. What do you think about the war on whistleblowers and what's going on with Bradley Manning and kind of this new era that we're seeing where we're cracking down on, on people who are coming out like that? Or WikiLeaks in general. Absolutely, yeah, I think it's absolutely, absolutely disgusting. Um, the Obama administration has uh, prosecuted or tried to prosecute more whistleblowers in their first, you know, three and a half years in office, three years in office, than all previous administrations combined. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the the scale and the ruthlessness that, that the Obama Justice Department is using to go after supposed leakers and, and whistleblowers is absolutely mind-boggling and I think absolutely terrifying. It is. It must be interesting as someone who works to uncover the secret pro, you know, the secret programs in a, in a reality that's shielded from the majority of the public. It must be pretty frustrating to see people like Bradley Manning coming out and trying to expose this you know, horrifying corruption in the chain of command within the military and seeing them just punished for it. And it just seems like people don't care enough. I mean, I know that there is a giant outcry for his release. It just seems like, you know, how do we even know that he leaked these cables? We don't, we haven't seen a shred of evidence really. And to me, putting someone in a, you know, locking someone in a box for a year shows me that you're trying to break down their will almost because you might not have anything to prove that they did it. I don't know. It's just, it's just, it's a pretty shocking uh, way to go about it. it. Must be pretty frustrating yeah, for someone I, I, like you. Well, I mean, I think that the, the administration response to to WikiLeaks, Bradley Manning, Thomas Drake, and any number of, of these 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 figures is just absolutely chilling and 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 just morally and politically repulsive. Um, moreover, in the case of WikiLeaks. The collusion of PayPal, MasterCard, Visa, Amazon, uh, with the government is bizarre and and mind-boggling and really, as far as I know, unprecedented. And so to me, that is the story that I would really like to hear a lot more about. I haven't seen anybody doing having done any role of work on why did PayPal get in on this? Why did MasterCard get in on this? <laughs> what is going on with 
the institutions and industries that really you know provide the uh grease that makes the internet work or, or provide that infrastructure their collusion with state power is is something that I would really like to see more work on on. Yeah, that's a really good point because it, it did seem very unprecedented, but it almost in a way seems obvious to a lot of people who, you know, are cynical enough to think, and I shouldn't, I'm not using the word cynical and negatively. I mean, I'm, I share this mindset that, you know, the government and corporations are pretty much in, in full collusion or, you know, the, the, some of the biggest corporations, but it's almost like, you know, just concrete proof that that is the case, that all of these, um, you know, corporations just fell in line and, and tried to pull the plug on WikiLeaks in as many ways as they could. And, and, um, yeah, that should have made more people turn their head and go, you know what, this is ridiculous. Um, and maybe that's, I don't know, I'd I'd love to see you write a book about that. (laughs) There's probably a lot that could be written about that. I'm sure. I mean, we've, we've tried to expose the collusion between why certain stories aren't getting out with media conglomerates and how, uh, you know, a lot of these people on the board of directors of media corporations also serve in, in Congress. So it is, it is disturbing, but then you look at who these people are serving and who they get money from. And it kind of, it's kind of just a sad state of reality that isn't talked about enough. The collusion between corporations and why policy is, is being made and why things like WikiLeaks is being blocked. Um, right. I, I I agree with you that of course that uh, um, the state to a large extent exists for the benefit of, of corporations, but mostly what that's about is economics. Sure. Right? It's about, about not paying taxes, repressing labor, deregulating. Um, there are not a lot of instances, to my knowledge, where corporations have become involved in just collaborating with the state in in an over overtly kind of coercive way. To me, I think that that is a yeah, it's that, an, that's something that's remarkable and and just so blatant. I mean, that, that you're right. It was very unprecedented. It, it is on a completely different level. I mean, you could you could say, oh well. You know, the, maybe some of those people who sit on the boards for those corporations have friends in the U.S. government. But, I mean, it makes one so curious about how that kind of relationship could play out like that. It is it is so bizarre. Yeah, like how, how PayPal can just have an overtly political stance where the whole company just uniformly just blocks. Weak. I mean, it just it seems like a very big political move and really um, controversial yeah, it seems dominated more by some sort of political ideology than anything economic, which, yeah. which I mean, is a, you know, definitely an interesting area of, of government secrecy that I'd love to know more about. Yeah, we should definitely <laughs> go more into that. Trevor, have you ever been hassled? You know, you're, you're taking these photos of black sites and, and sites that are kind of off the radar, not really supposed to be known about. Have you gotten any um, flack for your work in terms of the government or any government agency or has anyone come to you and said, look, you know, don't do this. <laughs> um, not in any kind of overt way. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of this stuff is a little bit below the line. Doesn't necessarily happen in ways that you might think it would. Um, in, in general, no. no. I mean, the United States is a very weird place in the sense that on one hand, it, it has a massive secrecy apparatus, and it has huge parts of the state and millions and millions of millions of people that are who's that are hated and devoted to doing these sorts of extra legal operations and functions. At the same time, there's no statutory basis for secrecy in the United States. All secrecy is done in the U.S. by executive order. That means that there are no laws saying that. You can't put the deepest, darkest state secrets on the front page of the New York Times if you don't want to. And indeed, that, that has happened over and over again throughout history. And so uh, the kind of work that I do would be illegal in most places in the world, but it's not legal in the United States. And that is because of this very, you know, peculiar history of on one hand being a very, very secretive society, 
uh, there isn't a thread within the American political traditions that is very uh, open and open in, in a far more dramatic way than most you know other countries. Hidden in plain view. <laughs> um, Trevor, is there anything else that you wanted to to discuss? I mean, we pretty much covered everything that we wanted to. Um, where where can people go? Just just your website. Is there anywhere that people you want people to go other than your website to check out your stuff? Oh, just uh, my website is a, it's a little bit outdated, but it's a, it's a perfectly good resource. It's just my last name, P A G L E N dot com. I couldn't help but I mean, in in your work, it seems like humor is sometimes inevitable um, when when running into, especially the 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 patches um, and mm-hmm. and even just I. I Forgive me, I forgot the name of, of the actual art exhibit you did with just a list of... What was the name of that exhibit you did with just which was just a list of all the top secret projects? Uh, it was just called Code Names. Code Names. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> one of them that just was really funny to me is a one that was called the Retract Maple that cost $346.1 million. Um, I, did, I don't know. I just laughed out loud when I heard that name. Do you ever have a similar reaction when you're coming across this kind of stuff? Oh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> I mean, a lot of this is, is really absurd. <laughs> yeah, and almost, I mean... It's, it, it, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's definitely, to, to put it mildly, I mean, it, I... I mean, I would almost, if I was doing this kind of thing, I would, I would, the absurdity would probably be part of what drove me to, to continue is just because of, I mean, it's, it <laughs> it's, it's, absurd. I mean, it's extremely hilarious just um, on its face. But. <laughs> what, what are some of the best uh, or most bizarre code names that you've uncovered for that exhibit? Um, oh, man. There's a... <laughs> None of them. I mean, I don't. I have to look at them. Uh, and they, that that is, all of those are reproduced in a book I did called Invisible. And so uh, it, it, it's just, there's several pages of the book that's just did these bizarre code names. One of the things that was really crazy, Trevor. On a side note, while my brother's looking for this, was uh, I think you were filming in San Diego, and it's funny because I I lived in San Diego for eight years and. I think you over, I don't know if you upped the exposure on, on one of the photos and you showed like a giant hanger, <laughs> like a ship. Was wow, that you what? found that project. That, that's a little obscure. Yeah, that's a crazy thing though. Yeah, there's a, that was that big floating, uh, sh- um, basically a giant floating hanger. And it has an interesting history going back to the 1970s, but yeah, it was in, the, in that uh, bay in San Diego for a long time, they had this stealth ship inside of it, something called the Sea Shadow, which is a ship that looks like a stealth fighter. It's a boat. It's amazing. And you knew that that was there, and, and did you kind of have a sense of where it was? And that's what you were... Yeah. Yeah, that's freaking yeah. crazy. It seems like there have been very few people besides you who have actually... Um, been able to expose things like Area 51 without veering into um, this kind of more wild conspiracy theory territory. And the only other person I could find on the internet who's had any sort of publicity surrounding Area 51 was um, a guy named Jonathan Turley, um, who brought a uh-huh. who who did he did he actually effectively bring a lawsuit towards the U.S. government or what what happened with yeah, that? Do you know anything yeah, about that? Jonathan Turley, absolutely. Jonathan Turley represented a group of former workers at Area 51 who became very, very sick in the late 1980s and early 1990s because the Air Force was burning all kinds of highly classified, highly toxic waste in pits at Area 51. And the the set of late 1980s, people who were sheet metal workers, uh, construction workers, would describe what they called the London Fog. And the London London Fog was um, basically the Air Force, uh, a whole bunch of uh, experimental and self-technology. There's a huge rise in secret projects that happened in the 1980s, secret technologies. And they started generating a huge amount of secret trash. It's not something that you 
think about immediately, but you can think about it for a little bit. Yeah, sure. Projects under trust. So they have all these hulls, the experimental chemicals that they're using for radar absorption and the experimental shapes and airplanes that didn't work out or that they're trying to get rid of. And, they, and they were, the problem was, what do you do with all this trash? In secret, you can just take it to the landfill. Um, so what they decided to do was to dig a bunch of trash and pour jet fuel on them and burn them. And now there's a reason why there's strong laws against burning toxic chemicals. Because it's the, pretty much the easiest way to get it into your bloodstream is to burn and inhale it. And so a lot of people at Area 51 started getting sick in the late 1980s. And they bought a class action lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency and the Air Force to learn what chemicals they had been exposed to so that they could be treated. And the Air Force turned around and said, well, this place that you're talking about doesn't exist, so we don't know what you're talking about. Moreover, we don't know, we would like to know what your name is. John Doe's, and they basically, the Air Force basically said, because this place doesn't exist, we don't know what you're talking <laughs> about, and therefore this court case cannot must be thrown, thrown out on the grounds of state secrecy. And that, the long and the short of it is that's exactly what happened, and all these people died. And John wow. was, a, was a lawyer who had represented him. And, and, and subsequently to that, he's been a pretty uh, prominent um, Lawyer with regards to the question secrecy, state power, and uh, and that sort of thing. That's um. I mean, that, that, that George Washington. That's really chilling. I mean, that that you know, all you hear about Area Fifty One is aliens and UFOs. But I mean, it seems like you know, at least in the eighties and early nineties, the real secret there is that they were burning toxic chemicals that were killing people, and that's you know, ultimately far more disturbing to me. Um. And uh, and and from what you just said, it sounds like the U.S. military or Air Force never even admitted that it existed during that those proceedings. And if they tried to sue the EPA, um, that also makes me assume that the EPA has absolutely no authority over a place like Area Fifty One because it's yeah. it's free of that kind of accountability. Is that the case? I mean, it would seem so. Yeah, that was the, um, the one of the things that Turley had. Uh, brought up, and I think at some point that there, yeah, I mean, in fact, I'm sure that the lawsuit did force an EPA inspection of Area 51, but I think the results of those inspections are classified. I mean, I heard kind of through back channel that there's a big debacle around that about how that was going to work because the EPA doesn't do classified work, and how can you have people that don't have classified clearances working at their classified air base? But yeah, these, these are the kinds of contradictions that secrecy produces. Wow, that's uh, that's crazy stuff. Uh, well, I guess that's all the questions we have for you today, Trevor. We'll definitely be following your work and keep up everything you're doing. Incredible. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Take care now. Thank you.